0: everybody, I'm Ashley, and welcome to this month's edition of The Dollar Club, our opportunity to give just one dollar and see the amazing things that can happen when we all do good together. This month, hundreds of thousands of students across Middle Tennessee went back to school and we wanna celebrate educators. So today we're at Jerry Baxter Middle School in East Nashville, sitting down with Principal Cox and Miss Spalding to talk about the upcoming year. Elisa, this is your first year teaching. It is. It's your first week. How's it going? It's going awesome. I'm excited. And you started as a substitute teacher, right? I did, yes, ma'am. What was it for you that you decided now was the time?
1: I decided that I wanted to jump in because I realized that students need an advocate and they need a support system. And I wanted to be a part of that. What
0: subject are you teaching? English, seventh grade. And what do you love about it? Oh, I
1: love um, how we're exploring a lot of creative writing styles. It's given them opportunities to learn to be critical thinkers, to know who the who is, the why, the what, the how, identifying the emotions of the narrator. They're enjoying it. I've had a lot of scholars, can I read, can I read, can I read? No, it's my turn. I want to read, so
0: they are ready. This is going to be a great year. There are over 80,000 students in Metro Nashville Public Schools, which is incredible. 159 schools, 29 middle schools, which you guys are obviously a part of. Can you talk about just your students here?
2: Jerry Baxter is a special place. We have about 400 scholars. We have over 15 different languages spoken within our school. Our scholars are highly intelligent. We approach every interaction with you or me. We want you to be your best. We want you to feel your best. We want you to think positive. So it's important that we are responsive to their needs and provide them the space to be who they are. It's just constant affirmations. Thank you, good job. You've
1: read great today. Even glad to see you. When they get into this atmosphere, they can be reminded that they're valued and cared
2: for.
0: I know that you also have programs here to support not only your students, but their families as well. You have a hygiene closet. Can you talk to us a little yes, bit about that?
2: So we saw a need, whereas a lot of our families were experiencing financial challenges. Um, they just didn't have the basic needs. We started a clothing closet, and we have a washer and dryer here, whereas families can come and wash their clothes at no cost. We provide washing powder, soap, deodorant, um, feminine products. We've noticed that when scholars don't have the basic needs, they're oftentimes disconnected from the learning process because they're thinking about where my next meal is coming from. Like what 12-year-olds should have that occupied uh, on their psyche. Yeah. Are my lights gonna be on when I get home? Is my mom gonna be home when I get home? Because the reality is a lot of our parents work two and three jobs, and they're still unable to meet um, those needs. But I have to say here at Jerry Baxter, we have teachers who have spidey senses. They're able to identify that need without the scholar even saying anything.
0: How are you stocking that hygiene closet? Most
2: of the resources and supplies are purchased from staff members.
0: For your teachers to be taking that out of their own pockets to supply those closets and the needs of your students, especially a new teacher, can be financially difficult. I didn't have um, the funds, the means to set up
1: my first classroom the way that I desired and planned. The school supported me with a lot of school supplies. I even had a teacher to get all my number two pencils sharpened for me and had them all nice um, on my desk. It made me want to really just do the same thing
2: back. I want to be a support during their learning process. Our teachers make so many sacrifices on a daily basis for our scholars. We're just forever grateful for just the village of just advocates for our scholars.
0: Well, I know that we said that we wanted to share your story, but at Crosspoint, we also have this thing called the Dollar Club, where once a month, we ask everybody in the church to throw in an extra dollar, pool that money together, find a need in the community that needs to be filled and go fill it. And I know that being a first-year teacher is hard and exciting and you thrive, but also like can be financially difficult. And so I have a check for you, just cause the generosity of a whole lot of people for $10,000. <gasps> Are you serious? <laughs> I'm sorry. Like uh, what? For real? Oh yes, my. for real. It's just the oh, generosity wow. of a whole, <laughs> a whole lot of Why people. do not do that? Okay. Oh gosh. No, it's unbelievable. <laughs> <is> so <laughs> oh my
3: God. Are you really? Are you for real?
0: Why like, can I give this oh, to you? Yes, can I?
3: Wow. Oh, Lord, have mercy
1: so much. Thank you. That is oh, so hot. I am happy. I am, too. I'm happy and crying and teary and. I'm going okay, to give this to you. OK, thank you so much.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Whoa.
4: Man, what a picture. And what a picture of what happens when we all do just a little bit extra, and we bring that together. We get to be a part of something extraordinary, and, uh, and that is just a glimpse of what we get to be a part of together. Coming up on Tuesday night, August 22nd at our Nashville campus at 6.30 p.m., we're going to have a one church. We're going to gather together and, uh, and bring a little extra prayer and a little extra worship and, and, uh, and extra praise together. And get to see God do something extraordinary. And our heart is for our schools and teachers and educators, administration. And so we're we're excited about this night. We're praying for God to do some big things this school year. I hope that you can join us for a for a night of worship together. And so, uh, so go ahead and plan to get here a little bit early. We're going to have—we'll have—, we'll have um, Child care for fifth and below and uh, and so bring bring them as well and we're gonna have a wonderful night of worship together. So excited about Tuesday night. And uh, and we're in a series where we're talking here be dragons, talking about how these Ancient map makers used to take dragons and put them on the maps, and they would be these symbols of unexplored territory, these places, and it was a, the dragon would be a symbol of, of like fear and uncertainty. And we've been walking through stories in the Old Testament, and today we're talking about the dragons that are caused by mistreatment. We're going to be looking at the story of Joseph, which is a story of forgiveness and, and reconciliation. And one of my favorite definitions of forgiveness came from an experience that I had um, a couple years back on an airplane. Um, I, was, um, I was flying and I was... Get ready to take off, and as I was walking onto the plane, um, I saw somebody in first class that said, Pastor Kevin. And, uh, and so I think you know, it was that awkward moment, hello, because, you know, I'm making my way to the back of the plane. You know, it's like, I would talk, but I got to go sit where I prefer to sit, by the lavatory in the back. And uh, <laughs> so kind of make my way through first class, past the curtain, separating the Holy of Holies from others, and you know, and I just went back in the Court of Gentiles, back in the back. and. Uh, we sat back, back there, and I'm, I, I had an aisle seat, which is a good thing. I'm sitting, sitting on the aisle, but I'm toward the back of the plane. And it was a short flight, and when we finally land, um, I was just kind of sitting there, and then realized that everybody kind of—and I don't know why people feel compelled to do this thing. Everybody kind of stands up and rushes toward the front. You know, everybody kind of like crowds the aisle. And, and it was just this—I'm just looking around, and it's packed. And they have, they haven't even opened up the gate, and like people are already, are already standing up and kind of pushing their way forward, and I'm just sitting. And then, um, and then I hear this, I hear, ha, 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 choo, and then I feel it. <laughs> and the person that was standing right back there just sneezed all over oh, my arm, my hand, my bald spot, just everything, and I'm just—and I just I, gag reflex, I just, and then my fist ball up. And I'm like, I'm about to get in a fight. I'm about to get a fight. And I turn around and look, and he's not that big. I mean, I, I'm just, and I'm like, I could take him. And then I realized there's somebody from the church in first class, you know, and that it's just Pastor Kevin, you know, it just doesn't go real well. And I've got it, it was a Saturday, and I had to preach on Sunday. And I'm like, I don't know if we can post bond before I got him. So I was just like, you know, I'm, I know, I can't fight him. And then and, and I was just, I was just, I was sitting there and I was just seething. And finally, it took forever, finally people get off the plane, and I get to get off the plane, and I go to the airport. Do you know how hard it is to bathe in the airport sink with the little motion detector? I'm like trying to, trying to wash everything, and I got in the car and I drove as fast as I could to the house, hot shower, got out of the shower, I was just like, ugh. Oh. And I looked in the mirror, and I was like, what in the world just happened? Like what just happened? And then I realized there's something that I forgot to say you know what I forgot to say? Bless you. Forgiveness is saying bless you when you want to say something else. (laughs) Now, here's the thing. Forgiveness happens in a moment. Reconciliation takes time. Forgiveness forgiveness can happen by yourself looking in the mirror. Reconciliation requires looking at another person, the person who wronged you. Forgiveness, forgiveness happens, is a choice that happens in a moment. Reconciliation happens, but it's a long process because reconciliation requires truth-telling, and it requires repentance, and it requires changed behavior. Reconciliation is a process, but it begins with forgiveness. And in the story we're going to see today, we see forgiveness and reconciliation, and this story takes place over 22 years, 14 chapters, 22 years in the life of Joseph. Reconciliation doesn't always happen, but when it happens, it's, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. The only time that reconciliation is instantaneous and promised is with God. You were you only a prayer away from reconciliation with God. In a moment, when you put your faith and trust in Jesus, reconciliation happens. There's scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 that says, "...God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God." So, the moment we put our faith and our trust in Jesus, we receive God's forgiveness. Now, we call this the great exchange, because in that moment, salvation happens in a moment. Reconciliation with God happens in a moment. In the moment that we put our faith and our trust in Jesus, all of our sin, our sin, is tra- all of our crimes, all of our failures, all is transferred to Jesus, and we receive the righteousness of God. The very righteousness that Jesus, Jesus is the only one who has not sinned, his righteousness, his right standing, right living before God, his righteousness, his purity, his holiness is transferred to us and that we receive that so that we can be reconciled with God. All of that happens in a moment. Now. That becomes our identity. Now verse 18 through 19 it says, all of this is from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. So because we have been reconciled to God, now we've received the message of reconciliation, and we've received the ministry of reconciliation. Look at the person next to you and say, you're in the ministry. Ministry is not just somebody who, who has a vocational position at a church. Ministry is what we all—we call the priesthood of believers. We all are in ministry. And in Corinthians, he's telling us—Paul's telling us that we've received the message and the ministry of reconciliation, so now it becomes our responsibility as those who are reconciled with God to share this good news that other people can be reconciled with God and to help people experience reconciliation in relationships. Forgiveness happens in a moment. Reconciliation happens over time. Unless we're talking about you and God, that can happen today. Now baptism is a picture of that reconciliation. It's the symbol of reconciliation, and we're celebrating that next week. And so if, if you've made the decision to be reconciled with God, but you've never gone public with faith through baptism and letting other people know you're I want to encourage you. Sign up. Be a part. Of the glorious day where we get to celebrate what God's done in the lives of people. It's one of my favorite Sundays that we have here. I hope you'll take that next step of faith. But we need reconciliation with other people because we live in a broken world filled with uncertainty. Don't we? Our world is broken and it's filled with uncertainty. You know one of the reasons it's filled with uncertainty? Because there are broken people. And people... Often, we don't know what they're going to do. i t- I reminded where I went to a football game and I took, took the boys with me, went to a college football game, and we had tickets, um, and Bolton was like eight or nine at this time. We had tickets next to the student section, and so we're watching, I'm watching the game, Bolton's watching the people. And he said, Dad, drunk people are like squirrels. <laughs> you don't know what they're going to do. Shifty, and so he's trying to figure it out. And here's the thing: it's not just drunk people that are unpredictable. It's it's all people. And so whether people are sober, whether there's just this unpredictable, you can't control them. They crowd the aisle on airplanes. They sneeze on you. They cut you off in traffic. They cut you off in sentences. They say cruel things in person and online. They take your parking space. Some of you are triggered right now we're because the world is filled with a- People wrong us. How many of you have been wronged before? Raise your hand. Leave that hand up. How many of you have ever wronged other people? Raise your hand. We should all have two hands raised <laughs> because we've all, wrong- we've, all, we've all wronged people and we've all been we, we We're all victims and participants. So we all need forgiveness, and we all need to figure out how do we offer forgiveness to others? and maybe you 've been betrayed, or maybe you've, maybe you 've been lied to maybe you 've been falsely accused, maybe you 've been gossiped about, maybe you 've been manipulated, or maybe somebody ghosted you, or perhaps you were the one maybe, maybe you betrayed somebody or, or you falsely accused somebody, or you, or you manipulated a situation or rejected someone, or maybe maybe you were deceived or maybe you were abandoned, or maybe maybe you feel like you were forgotten, and if that 's ever happened, if any of those things have ever happened to you, you need to know. That the same thing happened to Joseph. All of those things happened, and more happened to Joseph. And Joseph, like he didn't, when you read his story, like he, he forgave. A root of bitterness did not grow up within. He didn't hold on to the grudge. He puts on a master class of what to do when we're mistreated. There's only one person I know who handled that kind of mistreatment better than Joseph. And so when we read through his story, and you can open up your Bible to to Genesis chapter 37, we're going to pick up there. When we read through his story, it'll connect with, because when we are mistreated, when we are hurt, especially by somebody who's close to us or somebody that we love, it can be disorienting. It It can be disorienting and it can leave us uncertain and we're asking the questions, well, who can I trust? Well, who can't- who is there for me? And when we read through Joseph's story, there's this refrain that shows up like five times just over and over in his story, and it says, and the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph, and the Lord was with Joseph. Because the Lord was with Joseph over and over. It's like, I don't know if the story is about, about Joseph or it's about the Lord that was with Joseph. And the beauty of this story is the same Lord that was with Joseph is with you. And He wants you to know His presence even in the midst of mistreatment, that you know that He is with you and that He loves you and He can continue to work even in spite of what other people say and do. And that's what we see in the story today, Genesis chapter 37. We're going to pick up in verse 3. It says, Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. So what he wants us to know is there's dysfunction in the family. There are no perfect families. I didn't ask you to raise your hand on that, but there are no perfect families. There are no perfect families. We're all in need of God's grace, and the dysfunction that's going on here is favoritism. In that Jacob, also known as Israel, God changed his name to Israel, he had 12 sons, and he had a favorite, and it was overt favoritism. He bought Joseph a coat that he got at Nordstrom. It was tailored, and it was ornate. Bought the other kids coats at five below, and so the other boys, the other boys are like, what's going on? And they saw Joseph's coat, and they hated his coat. They hated his robe because every time they saw his robe, it was a reminder that their father did not love them like he loved Joseph. And the favoritism, it ate them up. They hated Joseph and they hated that robe. And maybe you knew favoritism in the family that you grew up in, and you need to know that God doesn't love like that. That God loves everyone. Everyone. In the Scriptures teach us Acts chapter 10 it says God is no respecter of persons. In Galatians it teaches us that God does not show favoritism. And so God loves us all the same. God loves us unconditionally. God doesn't evaluate and God doesn't work like the world does where the economy of this world loves based on wealth and based on how well you're connected. how smart you are, or what you can do. God loves us all unconditionally. The ground is level at the foot of the cross, and He wants you to receive His love. Now God doesn't, doesn't show favoritism. In Christ it's a matter of desire. Here's what I mean. You're as close to God as you want to be. So when you see somebody who's close to God, it's not because um, God loves them more. Or God values them more, it's because they value God more. See, God doesn't show favoritism, but we do. We, fa- we favor things and stuff and people more than Jesus all the time. But the invitation in Christ is God says, come to me, seek me. If you seek me, you'll find me when you seek with all your- that's what He wants most it's all our heart. God doesn't show favoritism. There's not favoritism in the heart of God. Favoritism destroys relationships. Verse 4, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph is 17. He's got big dreams, but a low EQ. And one morning over breakfast, um, he says this, hey guys, listen to the dream I had. We were all out in a field and we had sheaves of grain and mine were, was bigger than yours and all the sheaves of grain bowed down to mine, which I think means I'm going to rule over you guys one day. What do you think about that? Um, dreamer? Yes. Self-aware? No. Another, the next morning he wakes up and they're eating cereal and he's like, hey guys, I had another dream. This time the, the stars and the moon bowed down to me. And uh, it's like, read the room, bro. (laughs) Verse 8, it says, and they hated him all the more because of his dream. They hated him, which is wrong, but you know what else is wrong is stirring up other people's jealousy. (laughs) Hey, do y'all see my coat? You like this coat? It's bedazzled. I mean, Joseph, he's showing them, hey, hey, uh, you want to hear my dream? Or better yet, hey, did you have a dream last night? You want hear mine? We have sneaky and subversive ways that when we sense other people's jealousy we can stir them up. And I'm not saying, Joseph, is to blame for what's going on, I think we just need to evaluate with our actions do we seek to stir up other people's jealousy, and one day Joseph's brothers were out with the flock, and Jacob sent Joseph to check on them, In verse 19 they say, here comes that dreamer. Look, they don't, even, they don't even say his name. They say, come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of those cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him, and then we'll see what comes of his dreams. So what started out as jealousy, which is in here, became hatred, which was in here. Then alliance together, then a full-blown plot and plan to take his life. Sin, some of our grave and some of our greatest regrets, always start as small compromises in the heart. Attitudes in the heart. And they're going to take his life, but then they, one of them talks him out of that and says, "Hey, let's just let's sell him into slavery." And so they, they do that for 20 pieces of silver. They sell him into, into, into slavery and uh, take the robe from him. And they take that robe and they dip it in the blood of a, of a slaughtered goat and they take it back to their father. And when they took the ornate robe back to their father and said, we found this, examine to see whether it's your son's robe. I want you to see something. They didn't say Joseph. They didn't say our brother. They said your son. It's easier to mistreat someone if we've depersonalized them. We see this all the time in our culture, in politics, in violence, in crime, in gossip, in racism. When we depersonalize someone, we dehumanize someone, but to say their name is... This is why it's so powerful when we pray for people by name, especially people who have hurt us, because it's hard to hate somebody that you're talking to God about. Instead, oftentimes we talk to other people <laughs> about people rather than talking to God about the one who has hurt us. And something happens in our hearts when we intercede and when we pray for others. It's hard to hate somebody that you're praying for. Well, Jacob. Mourned and he grieved, and he wept. All the while, um, where's Joseph? Well, Joseph was sold into slavery, and he was then sold by the Midianites, and then he was sold again. And now Jacob is in, uh, Joseph's in Egypt, and he's, he's 500 miles away from home. Far away from home. In Genesis 39, verse 2, it says, and the Lord was with Joseph, meaning even though he was far from home, God was not far from him. God was with him. God was with him. And the next few chapters are wild, because it becomes this whole story of like a reversal of fortunes. Uh, My pastor, um, Kevin Myers, back at Church 12 Stone, he used to tell it like this, Joseph is the favorite son. That's good? No, that's bad. His brothers hate him. That's bad? No, that's good. His dad gives him a coat. That's good? No, that's bad. His brothers rip it off and pretend that he's dead and sell him into slavery. That's bad? No, that's good. He ends up in Potiphar's house, an Egyptian official. That's good? No, that's bad. Because he's a good-looking dude and Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him. That's bad? No, that's good because Joseph resists her and says, how can I do such a wicked thing against God? That's good? That's very good. He resists the temptation, but what happens next is bad. Potiphar's wife falsely accuses him, lies to her husband, says Joseph tried to sleep with her, and Joseph goes to prison. That's bad? No, that's good, because in prison he meets Pharaoh's cupbearer and chief baker and they both have dreams and ask Joseph to interpret their dreams. He does, and they promise that when they get out they'll remember him. That's good? No, that's bad, because they forget and he's stuck in prison two more years. That's bad? No, that's good, because one day Pharaoh has a dream. He has a dream, and he can't get an interpretation of it, and he asks the cupbearer, he says, is there anybody who can interpret dreams? And the cupbearer remembers that there's a Hebrew servant in prison who can interpret dreams, and so they go and get Joseph, and they bring him before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, I hear you can interpret dreams, and I love what Joseph says. He says, I cannot do it. He replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh... The answer he desires, I love that. I can't, but God can. He's standing before the most powerful man in the world, he said, I can't do it, but God can. And Pharaoh tells him the dream, and Joseph gives him the answer interprets the dream, and Pharaoh is so impressed with his wisdom, with his discernment, with his understanding. In verse 40 he says, "'You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you.'" What we have here is a promotion. (laughs) Moving on up. I mean, he got a promotion, I mean, he went from eating breakfast in prison to now he's second in command in the palace. He went from being in prison to being in the palace and eating filet mignon and having a—Pharaoh tells him, he's like, you're going to have a chariot driver? He says, you're going to you eat from my table. Puts a signet ring on it, and I want you to see this, and he puts a new robe on his back. God restores what the locusts have eaten. God restores those years, and in that moment he gets this promotion, and in verse chapter 42 it tells us that there is a severe famine in Canaan, and because of that severe famine that's going on there, Jacob, also known as Israel, tells his other eleven sons, he says, he says I want you to go to Egypt because I hear there's food there. He says, but I'm not going to send all eleven, I'm going to keep one here with me. He keeps the youngest there with him because he's like, what happened to me in the past is not happening to me again. I'm not losing another son, so he keeps that son there, sends the other sons back. They get to Egypt, and they go to the governor to beg for food, and they come to- anybody want to guess who the governor is? Joseph. They all get on their face before Joseph, and they beg for food. Do You remember the dream? Joseph does, but Joseph doesn't tell them. They have no idea. They don't know it's Joseph. So they're on their face before him. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces in the ground. And Joseph doesn't tell him who he is because he's counting and he's going, there's only ten here. He wants all the brothers together before he tells them. And so he says, y'all aren't, uh, y'all aren't who you say you are. You're spies. And they're like, we're not spies. He's like, no, you're spies. They go, no. Then tell me. He said, do you have other brothers? Here's what they say. Verse 13, your servants were twelve brothers, the sons of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father, and one is no more. Can you imagine being Joseph and hearing this 22 years? It's been 22 years since he's been with them. He says, the only way I'll know that you're not spies is if you go back and you get this other brother and you bring him back here. Then and only then will I know that you're not spies, but I'm going to keep one of you here as collateral." And eventually they come back, and for the first time in 22 years, all 11 brothers are together. And Joseph, he is overwhelmed. He just weeps. He's overwhelmed. He goes in a back room. And he just weeps. They still don't know who he is, but he's weeping in a back room, and he tells his servants, I want you to put on a feast. And they put on a feast, and they're all at the table, and then Joseph just—he he washes his face, and he, he comes out, and he's, he's composed, but he stands before them, and he looks around, and he sees the faces of his brothers, and he says, I am Joseph. I am Joseph. And they're terrified. They think they're—they think they're gonna—they think they're gonna die. They think that Joseph's gonna take their life in that moment. And he says, don't be afraid, he says, don't be angry with yourselves, because God used what you did to save your own lives. He says, God sent me here to save our family. Joseph had such eyes, perspective, to be able to see the bigger story of what God was doing. But he didn't just get there like that, it took 22 years. But I think something happened a few years before this moment, and I think we see it when Joseph had two sons in Egypt. When he was in Egypt, he had two sons, and their names were Manasseh and Ephraim. Now Manasseh means to forget, or forgetting, Ephraim means fruitful. So the first son that he had in Egypt means forgetting. It means God has enabled me to forget the troubles and the trials that I've been in. The trauma, the hurt, the pain, God has enabled me to forget. And then he goes, Ephraim, the next son is fruitfulness. And I think the order really matters. You know why? Because, because good, good fruit can't grow on bitter trees. And where there is the root of bitterness in our hearts, we can't experience the flourishing that God has for us, and so there has to be that place of forgiveness, and Joseph had to forget. He had to, in order to get to that place, he had to forgive, and there were a lot of people he had to forgive. He had to forgive his dad, and he had to forgive his brothers, and he had to forgive Potiphar, he had to forgive Potiphar's wife, he had to forgive the cupbearer who forgot him. He He had to forgive so many people in the story to be to that place of healing in his heart. Joseph had a long list, and, and no doubt you have a list too. And maybe even as you think, maybe, maybe there's that moment that you can't seem to, 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 to get past, or maybe, maybe there was that experience that, that still just weighs so heavy on you, or maybe, maybe that was a person who, who did you wrong, and there, was, there is no excuse for what they did. It was wrong, and it was, and it was evil. But God can use what the enemy, what Satan wants to use to take us out, and He can heal and He can restore. And there can be a Manasseh, and there can be an Ephraim, that God could bless you in such a way where you say, that wounded me and that hurt me and there's so much pain, but there has been healing that's taken place in my heart that's led to fruitfulness. In my life. And it starts with saying, I'm going to surrender this. I'm going to release this. I'm not going to hold on to this anymore. I'm going to let it go. And maybe you go, I can't. Can I tell you? God can. And one of the things we have to surrender is knowing why. Because when we've been hurt in our past, oftentimes the question is, well, why did they do that, and why did they say that, and why did that happen? And and sometimes we we never, most of the time, we never know why. And even if we did know why, I don't know that it would help. But that we surrender even knowing why, and say, God, I'm going to trust you with that too. God, would you give me that Manasseh? Would you give me the Ephraim? And so his brothers are afraid, and they're like, what if Joseph holds a grudge? What if he retaliates? What if he changes his mind? And they say, would you forgive us of our sins? And Joseph just weeps, and they bow down before him and they say, we're your slaves. But Joseph said to them in this famous verse, verse 50, 19 through 21, it says, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid, I will provide for you and for your children." And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Say, I can't. I can't get there on my own. No, you can't. But God can. In Christ, God will give you the grace to begin the process of forgiveness. How do I know? Because the great forgiver is at work in you. Because there was another father who had a son that he loved and he left home and his brothers, they forsook him, they ridiculed him, they mocked him, they sold him for for silver, put him in a pit, in a prison. And they took him out of that pit and out of that prison and they stretched his arms out on a cross, and on the cross Jesus looked at those who were responsible for his death And He said, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Spoke words of forgiveness from the cross, and He spoke those words of forgiveness from the cross for you, that you could receive that forgiveness, and it's only when we've received this great grace and this forgiveness from God that we're able to offer it to others. We've received the reconciliation with God so that we're enabled to live reconciled lives and to offer that grace elsewhere, but forgiveness begins with receiving yours and saying, God, would you give me that Manasseh? Will you receive His grace today? Will you receive His forgiveness? Are you willing to ask the great forgiver to do the miracle of forgiveness in your heart? Maybe that's where you need to start today. Or maybe today is a Manasseh moment where God invites you into a new season, a season of Manasseh, of saying, God, would you help me to forget? Or a place of walking in the fruitfulness that He's promised to take what the enemy wanted to use to take us out, and to use it to bring healing and hope and wholeness for others want to invite you into a song. This could be a song. It's kind of like a song that like Joseph would sing. I heard it last Sunday, and when I heard it, I had a sense that God would have this moment for our church, this moment for you, to receive this as a Manasseh moment. So I invite you just to receive, and then we'll step up afterwards and pray for you.
3: to forgive in all my broken places you're rewriting what's been written this is my